dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. Most Christians today recognize the importance of engaging our culture with the gospel. Changes are afoot that would radically alter the way that we raise our families and understand our fundamental freedoms. This sense of urgency has led many to try to find the most effective ways to impact the culture. How do we transform a culture before it transforms us? One of the most overlooked methods, however, is the simplest, the direct encounter we can have with the people around us. If cultural leadership were football, this would be the ground game. And this is the method our Lord himself showed us. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to this uh, next session here. This is session five on how we lead our culture to Christ. How do we impact the culture for the Lord? And we're looking basically at cultural leaderships. What I mean by this is this is the leadership that you're called to exhibit, not just in your organizations or institutions that you are leading, right, or your businesses. It's not just what you do in your family. Those, those are different well, there's different venues for leadership and they shape the way that we approach the Lord's command to lead the world in his name, okay? But like the, there's a special venue that is the generalized understanding of how we reprioritize the values in our culture and how we work to influence the culture by mechanisms that are not just that of business or just that of the family, even though it of course implies those, but other venues like the media or social interaction or customs that shape the way that we think. Right? So if you think about cultural engagement, it could be the leadership that we show, you know, over what we play on TV or what our schools teach our children, or it could be the leadership that we demonstrate by our voting and our political engagement. And interestingly enough, it's where most people today, most Catholics today, spend a, a most of their energy when they think about the gospel. It's almost like we're used to measuring the success of the church's impact in terms of how many followers so such and such an evangelist might have on Facebook. Right? But I just wonder, is this really the way we should be looking at it? We follow the news, for example, with dismay. From one thing to the next, there sounds like this bill is passing that's anti-family, or this policy is, is being passed that'll alter our view of matrimony and marriage. And of course, that'll redefine everything about how we, we work in our family life, or, or the pro-life efforts and the different political bills and, and machinations around that. And there just are so many people that are embroiled every day in a constant feeling that the world is changing or the world is is coming to a whole new era. And then they throw anxiety around themselves and create a sphere of negativity and sometimes even hostility, almost like there's a battle to be waged. And the way to wage it is by watching the news. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's literally kind of like, it's like the, the being upset about things becomes the only response that a lot of people feel like they can give in the presence of, of, of changes to which they're fundamentally opposed, and yet they feel like they are impotent to do anything about. 
And I, and I want to address that because, well, we are called to engage our culture. We're called to engage the radical social questions that are around us about racism and, and about equality and about equity and about, I mean, the, the family and education and poverty and immigration. And, but how do we engage them effectively for Christ? And, and there's a lot to be said about this. There's entire books and shows we could do on this. We don't have the time to, to do it right now and it's in an exhaustive way because, of course, everything is good. And, and we're, you know, we're called to lead in the political sphere. We're called to lead in the media sphere. We're called to have Catholic journalists, Catholic authors, Catholic artists out there you know, pro propagating the faith by every mean that they can. And we're called to be aggressive about how we can assert an influence to shape customs in our family, shape customs in our workplace, shape customs by the way we dress and the way that, that we promote things. I just saw the other day uh, an NFL player who's very famous uh, kicker for the K Kansas City Chiefs, uh, and he started his own clothing line. How about that? And his whole idea is men should be dressing with greater dignity, and he claims that this is a reflection of his Catholic values. So since the Catholic values are putting everything in the light of the true, the good, and the beautiful, this man says, I'm going to change the world by getting men to dress up. We can say, well, you could criticize that however you'd like, but at the same time, you could also compliment it as, well, here's a, a guy trying to make a cultural change, trying to lead the culture to Christ in the small way that he knows best. Well, that's an absolutely normal and essential part of the Catholic faith to try to exert this leadership over our culture. The question is, how can we do it in the most effective means possible? And here I'm going to say something surprising to you. I'm going to say, let's look at what our Lord and Savior did. Now, it's important that when I say this, that we, we, we not say that it's an either or proposition. It's a both and. I mean, our Lord went about his life mentoring people deeply, looking to change people by depth, who would then be able to change the world by scope. But it's never a scope, in the Lord's case anyway, that would be at the sacrifice of death. He was both trying to speak to the crowds and he was trying to form the hearts of his disciples. And between the two, he spent much more time and energy forming the hearts of his disciples. And, but even there, he had a hierarchy involved, okay? So he had, for example, there are five circles around Jesus. The inner circle is Peter, James, and John. He took them on exclusive opportunities for formation, like the transfiguration, the agony in the garden, where he would spend time in intimacy with them, revealing things to those three, and sometimes to Andrew, that he didn't reveal to the other eight or nine of the apostles. And at those, those intense moments, he was establishing a hierarchy of depth. He poured himself most deeply into those three. And from those three, of course, the 12. And so there he, of course, lived with the 12 for all these years, traveling with them, sharing these experiences with them, teaching them about how to be the leaders he wanted them to be, and then sending them forth to the ends of the world. And those 12, well, that's a higher calling than the 72, the third ring of circles around him. I mean, the 72, they were also privileged to certain teachings and moments that not everyone was privileged to, including when he sent them off <clears throat> to preach the gospel in every town or village into which he himself was to go. So they had, an, again, a deeper form of, of intimacy, but not the same as the 12, which was not the same as the three. 
And, and then, of course, if you go from the 72 out one more ring, you have the greater crowd that followed him, the 5,000 who were fed with loaves, those who sang Hosanna to him there in Jerusalem. They were impacted by his teaching. They listened to his teaching and to his words, but they didn't receive the same amount of formation as the 72. And then the fifth ring, of course, is the entire world that they were trying to reach. So you go from everyone in the world to those who followed him in the crowd, to those who were selected to be amongst the 72, to those who were chosen as the 12, and then to the three that were at the heart of it. And what does this hierarchy show? Our Lord never wrote anything. He never made a single TV show. He didn't go out and make a podcast. He, instead, he shared who he was. And he shared who he was to the entire world, to the crowd, to the 72, to the 12, to the three, and various levels of intensity. And this is such an important fact. You could then add, of course, Our Lady at the top of it as the number one because he lived with her for 30 years. So to no one did he share himself more. But you know, as you can see this methodology, the, the light that shines from our Lord's example is that he chose to play the ground game, meaning it was in the individual contacts that he could make and the relationships that he could forge that our Lord had the tool and the mechanism to impact the culture in the most profound ways. Now, again, this does not mean that he was against writing. In fact, I mean, look at the evangelists, right? The four gospel writers, they wrote books. St. Paul wrote letters. They used the technology of their day, boats and wagons and carts and horses and to do anything that they could to transmit the gospel in the best of ways. But they, you can't overlook that those methodologies were never preferred at the expense of personal relationships. Why? Because there's something profound in the relationship of love that allows the word of God to be received deeply into someone's life. And our Lord demonstrates for us that that depth of reception is just as important, if not more important, than the scope or the breadth of its reach. Would you like to hear more from Father Nathan? Join the St. John Leadership Network and receive a two-minute glance at the gospel every Sunday morning right to your phone. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. I think it goes without saying that all of us who are here are trying to impact the culture in a positive way for Christ. We're either convinced that it's going in the wrong direction and we need to change this direction, or we're trying to enhance the good things that are there to make sure that they get passed on to the next generation. Whatever it is, when we try to influence the culture for Christ, we understand that we are doing the same thing that St. Paul, St. Peter, St. James, all the 12 apostles were charged to do. In fact, we're doing the same thing that our Lord and our Lady did while they were on the earth. I mean, we can't just act as if the greater society at large and the customs and the way of life of the people around us are somehow outside of the scope of what our spiritual discipleship calls us to do. On the contrary, they're the place where we need to engage ourselves. I mean, every once in a while you hear people say this, like, oh, the churches stay out of politics. I mean, yes, the churches stay out of politics in a certain way, right? Because telling people how to vote or, or becoming a political entity herself but at the same time, the church needs to form believers who themselves as citizens will engage in politics. Why? Because if the church's believers don't engage in politics, well, then the, church, the, the gospel will never have the impact it needs to have to shape the culture in the light of Christ. 
And I, and I mean, like, I don't think I'm the only one that thinks that if our culture be, is not shaped by Christ and gets shaped instead by some other values, we'll be worse off. In fact, the line between good and evil is the line where Christians had decide to live their life effectively. Okay, so that means, but you see what I mean? The church is not a political entity, but she's involved in politics in so much as she transforms the hearts and minds of her believers to engage the political realm intelligently with the values of the gospel. And it's not just politics, it's art, it's education, it's social norms. It's a whole sphere of laws and legalities of our entire social contract, okay? So all that being said, we then have to ask ourselves, how do we do this, right? And if, if we look at the way of our Lord, we see that there's a principle that he gives us in his example, which is go for the depths, okay? You need to be able to spread the word via by every means possible, billboards and TV shows and all kinds of opinions on radios and talk shows and all that stuff. But nothing will replace the ground game of where our human heart is engaged deeply by a meaningful relationship that itself then becomes the conveyor of truth. Jesus's word is not an abstract fact and it's not a slogan, okay? And it's not a song. Jesus's word is a living truth and you receive a living truth by a living person in a living relationship with real love because you can't reduce the word of God to definitions or to something you could put into an encyclopedia. The, the, word, the word of God is a living thing. It's alive and effective. And, and, that, and where do you find living truth except in the living heart of a person who speaks it to you? Nothing can replace the power of a relationship to transmit truth. Okay, this is, it's so important. It's not an either or. We need everything we can, all the means we can. But there are many of people today that I've run into on a routine basis who somehow feel like they are completely incapacitated because they watch so much news and consume so much media that they feel like the whole culture is turning away from Christ and there's nothing they can do about it. When in fact, they're sitting in living rooms next to people that they haven't even had a meaningful conversation in with in a month. They don't have to spend any time with their grandchildren. They don't call their great-grandchildren. They don't speak to their neighbors. And they don't try to lift up the spirit in their own home because they're so overwhelmed by the, the, the news and everything around them that's going on saying that this or that bad thing is happening. And that's just got to stop. Because in fact, the power of Jesus is not exhausted and the light of the resurrection has not been snuffed out by the darkness of our culture. And I love what St. Paul says. He says, the word of God is near you. It's in your heart and it's on your lips. Okay, well, so all you have to do to actuate the hope that's in the gospel then is find a way to share it. So, so who's waiting for you to share love, to share hope? to share dreams. There's all kinds of people. I mean, from nursing homes where people are left just all by themselves with no one to visit them. I think you should, if you really want to change the culture for Christ, go out and visit a nursing home. Start to bring joy to people. You, you'll create the culture of Christ where you choose to. It's not going from the top down, in other words. It's going from the bottom out. If we start from the top down, we'll only change the outside of things. And laws can go from one side of the spectrum to the other and back again without really changing the foundational structure of things. The real power that Jesus shows us to transform culture is comes from transforming hearts. 
And you don't transform a heart from the outside. You transform it from the inside, from a relationship of trust, of sharing, a witness that comes from authenticity, right? This is what I call playing the ground game. And, and this pattern is the pattern that's been shown in the lives of the saints and of great leaders throughout our country's history. I'm just going to speak, for example, briefly about three of them. I want to start with Theodore Roosevelt. I'll start with the secular because Theodore Roosevelt's an incredible leader. Well, in his life, his life was transformed by a man named Bill Sewell. You can read about it in the book, Becoming Roosevelt, okay? Bill Sewell was a backwoods woodsman from Maine in the late 1800s. I mean, he was a lumberjack. He would shoot wild animals. He was a guide through the pristine wilderness. Uh, I mean, that hundreds of miles of absolute wilderness without any trail, knowing how to navigate, how to survive. And it was, in, it was to him that the, the father of Theodore Roosevelt sent young Teddy in his youth because Teddy was becoming soft and arrogant. And he didn't have any kind of physicality to him. He was living in a very high society where he was encouraged to not adopt what his father saw as the necessary manly behaviors that his leadership would require. And so he put him into the hands of a rough woodsman. And, he, and the rough woodsman, Bill Sewell, taught him how to fell trees, taught him how to skin bears, taught him how to hunt, how to trap, how to survive. And Theodore Roosevelt rose through the occasion to become the world leader and one of the greatest presidents of all American history that he was. But where, what, what made the impact in that man's life? So you look at the impact of Theodore Roosevelt's life in terms of all the, the trade deals, the military deals, the, the, the expansion of the national park system, all the legacy that he's left with. And you say, where did he come from? He came from a guy named Bill Sewall. <laughs> now, there's many other people that shaped his life, sure. But everybody who shaped Theodore Roosevelt's life had a hand directly in all the effects that that man would then make indirectly. And that's the same pattern that our Lord bids us to follow if we follow his example. For as important as every way is to advance the gospel, nothing could ever replace the ground game of personal, authentic relationships that transform the hearts of people who will transform the world. Would you like to start your Thursday mornings with a scriptural leadership lesson? Join the St. John Leadership Network, where Father Nathan hosts a 30-minute call at 6.30 a.m. in all four U.S. time zones. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. So we're giving examples here of, of people whose lives were transformed deeply and then who went on to transform other people's lives deeply. And, and I can't help but think of Pope John Paul II. And this is a neat story that a, a lot of people aren't aware of because, I mean, the, the feats of John Paul II are legendary. He's visited over 100 countries. He wrote over 20 encyclicals. He reigned in the Catholic Church for 26 years. He was an amazing influence. And most people and historians give him a major impact on determining the, the fate of communism that then fell largely because of his influence. So the man who brought down communism, if you want to think of it that way, he's not single-handedly, but influenced that, the man that led the world stage for so many years, where did he come from? Well, here's a little-known story that people might not realize. He came because his life was directly impacted by a Catholic layman who simply lived his faith and poured himself into the heart 
of young Carol Wojtyla, who would become John Paul II. It was 1935, and a Polish tailor named Jan Tiranowski, is a tailor, right? He heard a homily where the priest said, it's not difficult to be a saint. Okay, so some priest who takes the time to preach a homily has someone sitting in the pew who hears that and is impacted by the living word of God, preached by that priest. So thanks, thanks be to goodness for that priest. And then thanks be to goodness that that man was impacted. His name was Jan. He goes home and starts to pray. He's like, I'm not going to become a priest. I'm not going to become a monk. I'm going to be a tailor, but I'm going to pray every day. And he was living a daily schedule of prayer meditation that was stricter than that observed by many religious orders. So he was a simple man, but he was a deeply spiritual man. Well, what happens? He creates out of his zeal a desire to transform the culture by transforming the lives of young men. He creates what will amount to four different groups. He divides his groups up of 15 boys in each group. And then he assigns the task really simple that every day each boy in the group is supposed to pray one decade of the rosary. So that's one Our Father, ten Hail Marys, and one Glory Be. And if each one of them, 15, does one decade a day, that group in a living way will have prayed the whole rosary every day. So it became like this little, a little prayer group, so to speak, for Christian boys. The groups were all led by one boy in particular who was older. So you had four groups, each one of them with an older boy. And that older boy was then mentored specifically by Jan Tironowski, who would pour into them the, the knowledge that he had. Well, one of the older boys and one of those groups was named Carol Votia. And he learned from Juan Tironowski the Catholic spirituality of St. John of the Cross. And not only John of the Cross, but it was from him that he learned devotion to the Virgin Mary. <laughs> now, when you know the life of John Paul II, you realize what a momentous thing this was because his people motto was dedicated to the Virgin Mary and he dedicated his entire pontificate to her. And so where did he get his love from that, that inspired his papacy? From a Catholic layman who chose to invest in a youth group. Well, that's, of those 60 uh, young boys who were in that living rosary, 10 of them became priests. So the impact of each one of those priests on the tens of thousands of people whose lives were then shaped by the gospel all came from a simple tailor who dedicated his life to Christ and reached out through an authentic relationship to pour himself into true mentoring over young people who were thirsty for it. Now, don't you think you can do that? Of course you can. You might not want to reach out to youth groups, but you might. Why not start a youth group? Why not reach out in a way, one way or the other to form the lives of young people? But if you don't want to start a youth group, why don't you start with your own family, your children, your grandchildren? I know a man who every Sunday sets aside a half an hour to spend intentionally with one of his children in a one-on-one -on -one con contact, a conversation with one child. I mean, what a powerful thing. We think we take it for granted. Our kids are around us all the time. Yeah, but when was, do we sit down and ask them to focus in on us and we teach them how to have a heart-to-heart -heart with their own dad or their own mom? Well, of course, I mean, like what, what a difference that would make, right? Well, what, what does it take from him? Well, it took from, take, took from him the desire to do it, the discipline to do it, and he poured himself in the ground game. I mean, if you can have a one-half-an-hour conversation with each of your children every week, 
Don't you think that'll have the biggest impact on your family? It would be huge. And we do the same thing with our grandkids. A, a phone call once a week to one grandchild. It's, I mean, it might take a year or two, but in the end, they'll become accustomed to it. And they'll learn to have had a relationship with grandma or grandpa. And boy, through that relationship, can you ever do great things for God? I mean, you claim the heart by, by love that a society could never claim by lies. Once you claim them by love, you have a bridge directly to them across which truth can then walk. But without that bridge of love, the truth that we have oftentimes will remain on our side alone. And we don't get across the, the way to be able to impact their lives. I just think it's so wonderful to read these stories. Uh, the life of St. Ignatius of Loyola, same thing. This man would end up founding an order that would found universities and schools across the globe. 20,000 plus followers would become priests in his footsteps. Where did he come from? Well, he was laid up. His name was Ignatius of Loyola. And he was laid up in the hospital back in the, you know, the 1500s. And he, he had a cannonball that was shot through his leg as he was doing military exploits. And he couldn't find any book to read except the Bible and the lives of the saints. You know? And it just makes me smile because you're like, who published that book of the lives of the saints? What editor wrote that book? Who put it there in the hospital, right? What nurse or doctor uh, refused to get him another book just so that he would be forced to read that one? We'll never know how Providence arranged that Ignatius of Loyola only have two books to read, the Bible and the lives of the saints. But because of that, he was converted to Christ to give the very depths of his energies towards the service of Jesus and the gospel instead of the service of himself. You see, I mean, somebody along the way planted that, like they plant Bibles in hotel rooms, right? Or the way that people choose to invest in, in, by speaking to their waiter or waitress or, or by thanking their cashier at the supermarket. It's the little things, but they make the biggest difference for people because they're real. Instead of just bantering the gospel like an idea, we enflesh it and incarnate it in our loving relationships and actions. And by so doing, we make it appear with greater power and yield even more fruit. So as important as everything is, and we're going to talk about this, you know, about all the things we can do in terms of institutions and laws and movements and groups, all that's very important. But man, we can never forget the importance of playing the ground game, of making relationships that last. And it starts with our spouses. It starts with those closest to us, our friends, our children. And the opportunities that we have there will yield the greatest dividends if we invest in them effectively and try to bring the witness of Jesus Christ to bear right there towards those who are waiting to receive it from us to begin with. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at communications at stjohninstitute.org. That's communications at stjohninstitute.org. And visit www.stjohninstitute.org and sign up for our newsletter to receive updates from Father Nathan.